Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Right now we're in a series called, Is God Racist? Where we're looking at the Bible for answers to the injustice of racism and discrimination in our world today. If you're new to our ministry, welcome. Uh, leave a comment below to let us know you are here. Now, our national anthem is fairly typical as far as anthems go. O Canada tries to stir up true patriot love in all of us. It calls upon God to keep our land glorious and free. And the chorus expresses our resolution to stand on guard for thee. I like O Canada. As I've looked at the national anthems of Afghanistan, India, South Africa, Iran, China, and the USA this week, it stood out to me how much they all have in common, how similar they all are. They sound a lot like O Canada without the Canada part. There are nostalgic reflections on what is cherished about the country. There are often appeals to God for his help or his blessing. And you can usually hear allusions to war and calls for loyalty. A reason why they're often so similar is that they're usually written to prepare people for battle. We sing them in wars and sporting events. They rally us against them. Now, I think it's healthy to celebrate what's best about our country. And I'm grateful for many who have fought to defend our nation. But today I'd like to look with you at a totally different kind of anthem. It's a patriotic song, but unlike anything that you will ever hear at the Olympics. And it challenges us to consider whether our view of the world and our place in it is more shaped by our anthems than by our God. The anthem I'm talking about is a song sung in ancient Israel. And it shows how expansive the Jewish hope in the scriptures really was. I'll read from Psalm 87. And so if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to pause the video and go grab one so you can see God's word in front of you as I walk you through it. Psalm 87 verses 1 to 7. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Salah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is the word of God. Now, as I read the psalm, you probably noticed me reading the word Salah after verses 3 and 6. It's a Hebrew musical term that indicates a pause, and what it does is break this song up into three sections. The first section, from verses 1 to 3, starts like the anthems that you might hear today. Only this one is for the city of Jerusalem. It begins by celebrating how God has favored it. In, in verse 1, it talks about the city that God founded, standing on the holy mount. Now, Jerusalem is raised up more than 750 meters above sea level. So no matter where you're coming from, you're going to be forced to look up to see it. That provides it with natural protection. 
And to the psalmist, it's almost as if God built a perch for the city to rest on and then established its walls and its buildings. But there are other cities with higher elevations and even steeper approaches. It's not just the geography of Jerusalem that's so precious. According to verse 2, it's the fact that the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. It's not so much that Zion is so lovable. The point is that God has shown it particular favor. And the way he's done that is by choosing it as a place to dwell with his people. That's why in verse 1 it's called the Holy Mount. It's been set apart for God. He's made it a sacred place. He chose it as a place to be worshipped, a place where he reveals himself. In verse 3, the, the psalmist declares, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Here he calls it the city of God because it's the city where God resides. But what are the glorious things that are said of it? That's what the rest of the psalm sets out to answer. And what it gives is what I call Jerusalem's internationalist hope. It paints this incredible vision of God's heart for all nations. Yet often we miss this. The great John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, he wrote another hymn based on this psalm, and many of you know the hymn. Glorious things of thee are spoken. It's a wonderful hymn, and it contains great lyrics. But interestingly, even though the title and the opening line are quoted directly from verse 3 of this psalm, he never mentions any of the glorious things that are the focus of the psalm. Instead of the internationalist vision of hope for all nations, he gives us lines like, With salvation's walls surrounded, they mayest smite, smile at all thy foes. He pictures how God protects his people against their enemies. And that's a good truth. Or there's another line where he writes, Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. He speaks of the joy of salvation that's reserved for God's people. And both of these are precious promises. But there's a far more profound promise that's at the heart of this psalm, and it's never mentioned in any of the five verses of Newton's hymn. Now, maybe that doesn't matter. John Newton, he can write his hymns any way he wants, and he certainly doesn't need any input or critique from me. He does, a, he does just well without, without it. But I think it's a metaphor for the way that we often view our relationship with God. We're grateful for what he's done for us, but we often have little interest in what he can do for others. We want all of his blessings for people like us, but we don't share his passion and vision for the ends of the earth. Look with me at the second movement of this song and see what John Newton didn't include in his hymn. See how God seeks to correct that and as he reveals the glorious things that are spoken about the city of God. It shows Jerusalem's glory lay in its internationalist hope. Now, the section starts in verse 4 like this. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. God is making a list of the peoples that have come to know him. But he doesn't mention the people we're expecting at all. We're assuming he's going to list the tribes of Israel, surely. 
Or maybe he'll list a number of famous Old Testament believers. Among those who know me, I mention Abraham and Moses, Joshua and David. That we would understand. But look who he lists instead. Rahab was a way of referring to Egypt. Egypt was the first nation to brutally enslave the Israelites. And Babylon was the last. Lining these two nations up in a list is like giving us the A to Z of Israel's oppressors. Only here, they're listed among those who know the Lord. Then comes Philistia and Tyre. Philistia is a region that was made up of the five cities of the Philistines. If that's not ringing a bell, think Goliath. They were an ongoing threat to the Israelites. They didn't enslave them like the Egyptians and the Babylonians, but they were a constant thorn in, this, in their side. Tyre was a Phoenician port city in modern-day Lebanon, but it was culturally Canaanite. They too are among those who know the Lord. And finally, God lists Cush. As we've seen in this series, Cush was the African kingdom in modern-day Sudan. It's listed here as an example of the most distant and remote nation in the mind of an ancient Israelite. Would the knowledge of the Lord really reach distant Cush? This was the glorious thing about Jerusalem. Because it was God's city, he would use it to bring people of all nations to know him. Because God dwelled in her midst, he would draw people to faith even from among Israel's enemies. This internationalist hope was what gave Jerusalem such glory. And you can see examples of this hope all over the Old Testament scriptures. So in Psalm 117 verses 1 and 2, you get an example of how the Jewish people would cry out to the nations to worship the true God. It's a short psalm that just says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faith, faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. God's faithfulness and love toward them didn't make them retreat. It didn't cause them to think uh, uh, strange thoughts. It didn't ca cause them to fear people who were different than them. God's goodness made them realize that he was exactly what the people of the other nations needed. And so they sang this song with great hope that all people would come to God in worship. They didn't only sing about this hope, though. Their, their prophet spoke about it. So in Isaiah chapter 2, he describes the nations pouring into Jerusalem. But again, it's not a fearful vision. Instead, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They were promised that God's word would be sent out from Jerusalem and the nations would pour in eager to know their God and walk in his ways. It's a picture of a huge stream of spiritual asylum seekers coming to Jerusalem for relief. It's a vision of spiritual refugees finding peace in the God of Israel. Now, this internationalist hope was what made J Jerusalem so glorious. And in case there was any question about how 
God might receive this influx of seekers from these foreign lands? Listen to the words of Isaiah 56 regarding the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. In verse 7, he writes this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It's a promise of acceptance and forgiveness. The temple in Jerusalem was to be for all peoples and all nations, not divided up in sections as it is today with one group worshiping one God and another group worshiping another, but people from all nations unified together in their worship of the one true God. It's an amazing vision. But you can imagine the problems, right? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen in ancient Israel if Egyptians and Babylonians, Philistines, and people from Tyre and Cush gather to worship for Passover or Pentecost? The temptation for the Jews would be to see them through the lens of history, to think of the atrocities they committed and the pain they inflicted. They'd be inclined to look down on them, mistreat them, or to ex exclude them and reject them. But look at the glorious hope of this song in verse 4. It says, This one was born there. This one was born there, they say. It seems to be talking about these believers from other nations, but what does it mean they were born there? Born where? Well, verse 5 answers the question. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The believers from Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush are said to have been born in Jerusalem. How is that possible? And what on earth does it mean? Well, verse 6 clears things up. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. You see what's happening? Foreigners pouring into any other city might face discrimination and exclusion. They might be judged by their language or their accent or their appearance, but not so in the city of God. Because God is in her midst, these foreign worshipers get a different reception. God himself enters their names in the Jerusalem birth registry. They may come from the ends of the earth, but God assigns to them all the privileges of a local. In fact, in ancient times, being from the capital of an important kingdom often came with special privileges. You might be exempt from taxes, military service, or imprisonment. By God entering their names in his registry, he gives them the gift of royal citizenship. From now on, they'll be treated as if they were born in Jerusalem. For them, it's like a second birth into a new life, and they receive it as a gracious gift from God. This is the glorious thing that was spoken of the city of God. Who but God could create such a place? Now, I call this Jerusalem's great internationalist hope, and maybe you're thinking, Paul, I'm not sure that internationalist is actually a word. <laughs> actually, I looked it up. It's not. <laughs> I made it up. But if a nationalist is someone who believes deeply in the glory of their nation and its future to the exclusion of other peoples, 
Maybe an internationalist is someone who sees the glory of its nation in the inclusion of the other peoples. And specifically, what we see in this passage is a faith version of that internationalist hope that sees the glory of the people of God in their commitment to draw people of all nations to its God and its community. It's this utopian countercultural movement that treats foreigners like locals, outsiders like insiders. And the question the passage leaves us with is whether this internationalist vision has taken root in our own lives. Is this how you see the church? Do you see people with an internal us versus them mentality? Do you see others through the lens of old prejudices and national wrongs? Or do you see them in light of the hope of God's transforming power? People who sang the anthem of Psalm 87 needed to rethink what it meant to treat foreigners as locals. It would involve these Egyptian, Babylonian, Philistine, Cushite believers having a say in shaping the practices of the community. It would involve change for all of them. Is that something that you embrace for the sake of this internationalist vision? As the song comes to its final movement, the power of this internationalist vision is revealed. How could this kind of accepting community even be possible? What could motivate people to treat enemies like brothers, foreigners like locals, and outsiders like insiders? What could move people to embrace change for the sake of others? Well, verse 7 shows that the power for this internationalist vision was rooted in God's salvation. The song just ends with the refrain, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Now, what does that mean? And what does it have to do with Jerusalem's internationalist hope? The picture is of God's people in celebration. People are raising their voices in song. They're joining, joining arms and dancing with joy. There's satisfaction and awe, gratefulness and wonder. The question is, why? They all have the same answer. All my springs are in you. Now, if you lived in the ancient Near East, there was nothing more crucial than water. Without water, you would quickly dehydrate. Your crops would wither. Your animals would die. Many people would rely on cisterns to catch rainwater, but those required rain. Wells would access an underground water source, and so they were more reliable. But there was nothing like a gushing spring of water. It was abundance and blessing. It was life and deliverance. It would, it would ensure security in times of drought and fullness and prosperity for a family, and even an entire community. This is what believers find in God. When you look at Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9, they describe it like this. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. God is their abundance. He's their delight. He's their life and their light. This internationalist community can sing and dance with joy because they found in God abundant springs of life and hope and healing. And this is what fuels their internationalism. Now, 
If you see the source of blessing in your culture, or your style, or your musical preferences, God's internationalist vision is going to be a threat to you. You'll fear change because it might mess with what you've been clinging to. If you see a particular way of dressing or speaking or meeting as foundational to your faith, then you'll resist other cultures and new ideas because you'll fear what it might mean that you have to give up. If you see your blessing as hinging on being with people like you, people who share your opinions and your politics and your schooling philosophy, then you'll do everything you can to keep outsiders outside. You'll stand in the way of change and you'll be cool toward people who are new. But if you know that your water doesn't come from any of those things, if you're convinced all your springs are in the living God, then you won't get worked up about the externals, the particulars. You'll act as if, hey, there's plenty of water to go around. And you'll see people through the same grace that you know God sees you. This is the only basis for a, a truly Christian internationalist hope. Is this what you long for? Is this what you sing about? Instead of the internationalist hope of Psalm 87, some of you sing about your faith more like O Canada or some other national anthem. There's some nostalgia. There's some us versus them. There are appeals for God to help. There's a commitment to stand on guard for what we've got, but not so much desire to share what we have with others. We all remember Jesus when he turned over the tables of the money changers, but we often forget what he said about it. And what he said about it comes in Mark chapter 11, verses 17. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus embraced Jerusalem's internationalist vision because he was the author of it. He longed to see people of all nations coming together in prayer to the true God. And when he saw people not acting in line with that vision, it riled him up. Do you share his passion for the nations? Do you embrace his internationalist vision? Do you know that the spring of life that we have in Jesus Christ is big enough for all the peoples of the world? This is the glory of the people of God. This is what sets us apart. This is what's worth singing about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that often our vision and our view is too small and too narrow. We often get caught up thinking about ourselves, our own needs, our own preferences. So help us, Father, to see this world as you do. Help us to see people from all nations from all backgrounds and all traditions. Help us to see how we might cooperate with you in the great work of drawing them to faith in the one true God. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ who makes this community possible. Thank you for the passion that he had, not just for one people, but for all peoples. And thank you for his death on the cross on our behalf. 
that that offer of hope, even for your enemies, even for those who were once opposed to you, might be made freely to all. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope that today's message has helped you to see the wonder of God's internationalist vision. I hope it helps you to treat former enemies like brothers, foreigners like locals, and outsiders like insiders in the family of God. And I hope you see that the fuel for this vision comes from the God who is our spring of life. When we cling to him, we can open our arms to all who embrace him. Now, if you think this is a message that other people need to hear, help share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.